Welcome everyone to evening worship. It's good to see you and be with you. Let me begin with our call to worship from Psalm 96 verses 3 through 4. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. We are going to declare his glory together as the body of Christ. So would you please stand and we'll sing hymn 103, hymn 103, which is Holy God, we praise your name. Let's sing together. be seated. As you settle in, you can turn in your hymnal to hymn 189. As we sing our next hymn, we'll take up our evening offering, and if you're willing uh, and able to give, we invite you to give. Um, As God has given so much, we give back as he calls us to. But as we take up our evening offering, again, we'll sing Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, which is hymn 189.
Amen. You'll see soon uh, why we might be singing a hymn such as Jesus Loves Me, which I think never gets old personally, um, but you might be wondering if that's more fitting for a children's worship service or not, but we'll get into that in a second. Right now we have a time to pray together, and I've asked Elder Emeritus Mike Triplett to lead us off, but first I'd like to ask if there's anything that we can pray for this evening. So if you have a prayer request, we would love to hear it, and if you would like to pray this evening as well, we would love for you to pray as you feel comfortable doing that. So is there anything that we can pray for this evening? start of the school year. Anything else? Great. Well, Mike, if you'd start us off, and then we'll give you a few moments. If you would like to pray, please do, and then I'll close this after a few moments of silence. Let's go before... And pray. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of
Lord, the start of the school year is uh, a time uh, where most of us begin our our year. It's really the restart of our calendar year in which so many things begin again. Um, So so many fresh anxieties, uh, so many things to worry about, so many things to plan and put together and organize and to do. Lord, it can be a tidal wave of pressure uh, and worry. So, Lord, we know, as your word tells us, that you're with us in this season and that you will always be with us. But as we walk in this particularly difficult moment, um, of course, there's so many great things to be excited about and thankful for during this season. Uh, We pray, again, that you would be near to us in our struggle and in our worries, and in our uh, just long list of responsibilities, no matter what our age is. So God, would you go before us and lead the way that you would encourage us as we strive to work for your glory, as we strive to study for your glory. God, as we go through school in a way that brings honor to Christ, Uh, Be with our teachers, our parents, uh, and our young ones, of course. Lord, you are a good God. We thank you for the opportunities uh, that we have here for schooling and uh, the so many people that come together to devote their time and their energy uh, to our young people. God, as we approach your word and we hear your powerful forceful words regarding how uh, we treat those who are low, those who uh, don't have a high esteem in society. God, would you give us hearts that are humble and ears that would listen to you 
and believe your word and then live it out. So we pray that you would be with us this evening. And we know you are. We pray you would fill our hearts with your spirit to overflowing. We thank you for this time of prayer, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 30. <clears throat> Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 30. As you turn there, I'll explain where we are. Um, if you're new or visiting... Uh, we have been going through the Gospel of Mark uh, for a few months. We took the summer off, and now we're back going through Mark. And some churches like ours will go through seasons of expositional preaching, where we'll preach through a, a whole book of the Bible. Um, not, not every church does this um, for, for many reasons. Um, some of the... There are some great benefits to this kind of preaching, which I think there are many. And one is is that we cover verses and passages that we might not initially gravitate towards or want to preach on. And as we are commanded to preach the whole counsel of God, the whole of Scripture, expositional preaching, this book-by-book, verse-by-verse preaching, helps us to encounter passages we otherwise otherwise might not. And this evening is a hard passage for all of us to hear and to act on, and it is one in which uh, the words of Jesus, simply reading them out, uh, is enough to convict uh, all of us. And it is uh, it's a powerful passage. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach on this passage and also humbled by the task because it is so, um, Jesus doesn't mince words. He is very direct and clear and I'm asking God that he would help me as we go through this passage. Um, If you think this passage is tough, Jesus talks about money next. So if you have... uh, any issues about money or how you spend your money or how much you think about money, um, it is just as difficult and just as amazing to see how God works in these areas of our lives in which we uh, place so much importance. So let's read from God's word and then I'll pray. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they went to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. 
John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray briefly. Lord, this is uh, a long passage and it has some very tough teachings in it. So would you help us uh, to gain um, knowledge? Would you help us to understand the gospel more clearly and to know your compassion and mercy for sinners such as us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, passage, as you have heard, is direct and it is clear. Uh, there are some things in it that aren't clear, but for the majority of this passage, we are hit with the force of our sin and of being last and of serving, of doing these things that we are not naturally drawn to. So I want to look at three parts of this passage as we look at these things. And I won't cover everything, but we're going to look at how the... First, we're going to look at how we are to be last and to receive the lowest. Be last and receive the lowest. The second thing is to cut off causes for sin. And the third is be salted with fire. So let's look at be last and receive the lowest. It's interesting the contrast that Jesus makes right at the beginning of our passage. He says to his disciples, I'm going to suffer and be handed over to the hands of men. I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise, be risen from the grave in three days. And the disciples, immediately after this, are arguing about who is going to be the greatest. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go to the depths of suffering itself. And the disciples are saying, what are we going to get out of this from Jesus? Um, it's really interesting and terrible and um, almost funny how the disciples are doing this at this moment. And not just here, but every time Jesus in the Gospels says and predicts his suffering, death, and resurrection, 
immediately after the disciples talk about their glory, what they're going to get, and what blessings they will accrue because of Jesus, not how can they follow in his footsteps. As one uh, commentator, James Edwards, says, he says, Jesus counts the cost of discipleship, and the disciples count its assets. In Judaism, it was important where you sat at the ceremonial dinner table. So titles and position were incredibly important. So if you sat closer to the host, you were more worthy of honor. You were more important. You had a better reputation. And it was the same thinking for God's court, his dinner table, so to speak. The closer you were to God, the nearer to the throne you were, uh, the better. And as the disciples are traveling with Jesus, remember, the second half of Mark is all about this journey of Jesus to Jerusalem. They're on a journey now to a destination in which Jesus will suffer and die and rise from the grave. And as they get closer and closer to Jerusalem, the time begins to slow down and we get to see more and more details of this account. But as they get closer, the disciples are, of course, having these visions of grandeur in their mind. They're thinking, man, we're getting close to the point where Jesus is going to bring in the kingdom. He is going to reign as a king. And we are the lucky ones who are walking with him right now. We are his disciples who he's called. We are going to get so many things. We're going to be blessed with power and honor and glory. We are going to get all these things. And it made me think of an experience in which I felt a similar way. Um, I don't know how many people know this, but I used to, I worked for a part of a year on a presidential campaign. And working on a presidential campaign is very exciting. It's very interesting. Um, I was kind of brought into it by my boss. I wasn't seeking it out, so I just kind of got to enjoy the ride. Um, but when you're working in a campaign, you, and many of you have, um, when you are in a campaign and the tide shifts and the favor of the public shifts to your candidate, there is a palpable sense of um, glory. So when our, my candidate, who I was working for, um, had a moment, and it was a small moment, when it seemed like the whole, you know, one side of the country, uh, was excited and they liked this candidate. I, I, as well as everyone on the campaign, started to think about all the things we were going to get if this candidate actually becomes president. We would all talk about the different positions. Uh, we would get the different um, reputation we would get because most people working on a campaign, uh, there are tons and tons of interns who have no title, no status, no recognition, who will instantly be given all those things once their person becomes whatever they're running for, in this case, president. So in this moment, I would text my family and say, hey, looks like I'm going to be working in the White House. Uh, you know, 
we're going to be going to the presidential balls and doing all these things. And I had these crazy visions from a moment, a sliver of time when the public seemed to like our candidate. And that went away just as quickly as it came. Um, and, of course, I'm not working in D.C. or and I haven't worked in the White House. But um, I, I tell you that story because the energy of the group changed once they started to think about all the things that they would get, that I would get, if this person I was working for would become powerful and would get this seat uh, of, of power. The disciples see the kingdom of God coming and Jesus, and their minds are filled with visions of power and authority and glory. But Jesus turns to them and says, If you would be great in my kingdom, if you would receive glory, you are going to serve your neighbor. You are going to serve He says to be great, but not according to the world, but to the things that matter to God. And Jesus uses this word diaconos, diaconos, which of course sounds like deacon, because it ought to. And this word is often used to explain someone who is serving tables. So it is the basic word of service, someone who is serving in the most basic way. And... Serving others is not the most, uh, it's not our favorite thing to do, typically, especially when we have things that we want and need. Um, I found it interesting that Plato, and I'm not reading Plato, but someone else quoted him, uh, 2,500 years ago, he said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone, right? That's true. Many would say that today. How can you be happy if you're serving someone? What, what, What good is it to just be serving someone all the time. Why why don't you reap some of the benefits yourself and be served? But for Jesus, he is teaching his disciples that to see the reality of God's love, you can see it most clearly when you are serving your neighbor. Not just when it's convenient or when it's easy, but day to day. And so we could talk about applications of this for a long time. What does it look like to serve others? What is Jesus calling us to do? It looks like thinking about someone else's success before you think about your own. It could look like considering the desires and needs of your spouse before your own, your classmates before your own, your siblings, how to serve your siblings And not only do you serve others, Jesus says, in this kingdom, in his kingdom, you are called to receive the lowest, which means to welcome the lowest of the low in society, those people who have not even been identified by society. So Jesus takes a child aside, and you might think it's odd that he calls a child lowly, but in Jesus' society, children were considered of low status because they weren't yet contributing to society yet. Um, Infant mortality was extremely high, and so until a child was old enough to help out, 
they were seen as some of the lowest in society. Today, I think some, I think we do a pretty good job of valuing children. Um, I think you would agree with that. And there is also many ways in which we don't value and lift up our children. Sometimes we make idols of our children. But I think there are some strong parallels to what Jesus' society was like and ours. Um, children are often seen today as not worth listening to. Uh, they're made to feel ashamed or embarrassed or a joke to the benefit of others and sometimes to the benefit of adults. And Jesus is saying, if you don't receive one of these little children, then you cannot receive me. Um, if I can give an example of this, I saw this week. Um, it's hard to know how to explain this because it's such an odd experience that I had. I was given, uh, I was purchased a ticket to a Star Wars cruise. Um, if you're a fan of Star Wars, that's great. I'm a fan. But there is a thing called a Star Wars cruise, and you pretend that you're in Star Wars for two days on a fake cruise. You're actually not on a cruise. You're just in a hotel that's built to be like a fake um, star, uh, what do you call it, spaceship. All right? I'm, I'm sweating even more talking about this. Uh, I loved it, by the way. But um, So on this cruise, uh, of which... Um, yeah, so on this cruise, called a cruise, uh, of course there were mostly families with their children. And one of the beautiful, just most wonderful things that I saw over and over again was how the staff, who were all characters, all the staff you know, on board, were characters. And they treated everyone as if they were the main character of a story, right, of a, some grand space story. And that meant they treated little children as if they were kind of the captains of the ship, as if they knew everything, and that they, even if they asked the most ridiculous or silly question, the staff would answer with their best, most serious response to whatever question it might be. And I can't even think of a silly question like, why are there, why is there a basket of oranges in the lounge? And they would say, well, in space, uh, we enjoy oranges. Or so, you know, like, you, you get what I'm saying, that they would treat children, especially with respect, um, and they would answer them as if they were important, right? As if they were actually um, even over them in their position and power, and, of course, this is not how we are to treat children all of the time, but I, I give you that as a, as a picture of, I guess it just encouraged my heart to see what it looks like for children to feel as if they are, as if their opinion matters, as if they are a part of the story, and as if they matter themselves. Jesus is saying here, isn't saying here, be like a child, 
He's saying, receive children, receive the lowest, and even serve them. Embrace and welcome and lift up those in society, those who society say are unworthy to be received or unworthy of respect. Perhaps today it's the employee working behind the counter at McDonald's or it's a cleaner at Walmart. I don't know. You can think of many things. Maybe it's your neighbor who never leaves the house and has no contact with anyone. Someone whose society doesn't even know exists. We can ask God for eyes to see the people that our society doesn't see and to receive them and to serve them and embrace them. So Jesus is saying, if you want to be in part of my kingdom, you're going to be last. You're going to serve the lowest. You're going to lift them up and you're going to be building a great reputation. You're going to be building honor and glory for yourself in heaven as you do these things. And then, if that wasn't hard enough, we go into the next part of our passage in which uh, I titled this point, Cut Off Causes for Sin. Jesus, in verses 42 to 50, gives metaphor after metaphor of what it looks like, of how important our sin is in following Jesus. Uh, it's sobering, it's challenging, it's terrifying, and I can't soften what Jesus doesn't soften. And in verse 42 in particular um, is a warning against inhibiting or injuring the faith of others. And we read this, it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I had thought about this passage a lot, and then everything that I had written about it, I deleted um, today. Because um, for me, this is a difficult verse to apply. But what I've come to um, to marvel at here is Jesus' love for the lowest in society. He says, if you mess with, if you cause even those who society say are the lowest to sin, it would be better for you to suffer this horrible death than to do that, because if you do that, the wrath of God will be laid on you, the full wrath of God. Jesus is showing us that he not only loves, but he is telling everyone who will hear that you should not cause another person to sin, especially young children. And so we can ask the question, um, are you causing another believer to sin? Are you causing a child to sin? Are you teaching that what is unholy is actually good? We can ask ourselves these questions and think about them. And ultimately, 
I think we would all say, if we have interaction with children, we would say, I know I'm not a perfect influence. I'm sure there are ways in which, for, my, for me, I've, I've gotten angry at one of my daughters and caused them to be angry at me in, in a sinful way. Um, and so our natural response to this is, one, to ask God to inspect our hearts by his spirit and say, am I, am I part of this? Am I, do I have a role in this? And then to go to him in repentance, to seek forgiveness, to follow Jesus. And so we see in this, just this one passage, this one verse, the justice and the grace of God. They both come together. As some people say, they're two sides of the same coin. That Jesus both requires obedience, but then gives himself up as a sacrifice to those who break his laws, who sin against him. So what God both requires, he gives of himself. The terrible wrath of God falls on Jesus, and the grace of God is shown to sinners. Um, Let me move on. We read this next part of this passage, and I'll just read the end of it. It says, It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Of course, we know Jesus isn't meant to be taken literally here. He's using uh, metaphors. He's using hyperbole. He's using extreme metaphors to make his point. And I think he makes his point very clearly. It's that we are to treat sin as we ought to, as God sees sin. For Jesus, he is teaching you and me that nothing should stand in the way of salvation in Christ. Nothing. Not even those things that are as important to us and critical to us as our hands, as our feet, as our eyes. And sadly, I think because we're sinners, if we cut off our feet and our hands and gouged out our eyes, we would still find a million different ways to sin. If only it were so easy to remove sin from our lives as that. So Jesus includes all that we view, all that we do, everywhere we go. In this command, he says, in essence, is what you're watching causing you to sin? Cut it off. Remove it. Is what you're doing, whether it's overworking, not sleeping, playing too many video games, not studying and doing your schoolwork, watching a show that you know your conscience is telling you, this is not good for me and not honoring to Christ. Jesus says, cut it off, cut it out. And so Jesus is going to be the impetus for you, whether you're coming into this evening service uh, feeling wonderful, uh, feeling like, 
whatever. I'm not, try, not sure what I'm trying to say. But at this moment, for this group of people, God has chosen us to hear this command to take our sin seriously, to cut it out of our lives, those things that cause sin in our lives, to get help. Because he says the choice is eternal hell apart from God or the glorious kingdom of God. Those are the two destinations, the two choices that everyone on earth has. And so the question that he's asking is, do you join in this fight, as I would call it? Do you join in the fight of your life, or do you give up? Jesus uses this word hell, and it's the word Gehenna, which is, as many scholars would say, is a valley that was a place for human sacrifice that was then turned into a dump. So if you can think of the most nightmarish scenarios, put them all together, that's what this is. Uh, It's a symbol for divine wrath and punishment, and Jesus is quoting Isaiah. And after two parts in Isaiah, where Isaiah is preaching about God's faithfulness and his promise of salvation, he then warns everyone against rebellion against God. And this is a warning, as Jesus says it, this is a warning for you and for me. It's for everyone in this room. God uses his words and these warnings as a part of his work in each person's life through the Spirit. And so we are to hear this warning, to heed this warning, to consider our lives And as James would say, in a way, uh, the surest way, maybe it's First John, the surest way we can know, um, uh, I'm not sure this is the best way to put it, the surest way we can know that we are saved, that we are one of God's people, is if we are hearing his word and we are doing it. If what we hear we hear it and we do it. Um, again, this is a difficult passage, and uh, those of you who've known me for the past six years probably wouldn't say I'm the hellfire and brimstone preacher. Um, but there's so much grace to be had in this passage. So much, and I want to talk about that, and then we'll be done. So be salted with fire. That's the final point. Be salted with fire. What does this mean? For everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, There's a lot of interpretations of what this can mean. Um, I like this explanation, which is when we think about Israel's animal sacrifices, they would do burnt offerings, burnt sacrifices, in which the animal would be burnt completely. And Leviticus commands the Israelites to offer salt with every sacrifice. So if we take this illustration of sacrificial animals and we pair it with discipleship and being a living sacrifice, we can see how discipleship to Jesus, which is following Jesus, doing what he says, trusting him, we can see how that is a total dedication of our life. We 
give everything in our life over to him, even those critical parts of our body. We give everything to Jesus, complete, completely and totally. And to be a living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans, is to serve others, it's to nurture the faith in others, it's to guard others from sin, it's to cut off causes for sin in our own lives, it's to become low, to welcome and embrace the lowly, and to suffer for the sake of the kingdom. This is a high and majestic calling, and it is a miraculous calling Because if God works in your life in this way, you can know that this is not how the world operates. To be last and to welcome the lowest. And we know that Jesus became lower than the lowest criminal in history to save a lowly people. We read in Scripture, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, working together with him. Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Jesus willingly cut himself off from fellowship with the Father on the cross so that you would never be cut off. In Jesus, you can repent of your pride, of your desire for prestige and worldly glory and reputation and become low. In Jesus, you can cut off those parts of your life that cause you to sin. Only by the Spirit can we do these things. You can cut them off because Jesus was cut off for you. And in Jesus, he will make you a living sacrifice, salted with fire as you follow him. And this is all easier said than done. But if you truly desire to cut off those parts of your life that are causing you to sin, there is no one more equipped. There is no one greater. There is no one more interested, more capable than God himself at helping you. So if you want to see God at work in your life, you ask him to get involved with your life, with those areas in which you are falling into sin, those areas in which you are struggling. You can ask God to help you identify those causes. You can ask God to bring the church around you to share burdens with to support you and encourage you. And so we're going to ask God to help us to fight for humility, to fight for the lowest in society, to fight for the faith of young believers. This is the fight of your life, and if you aren't fighting, you are dying. Or as John Owen would put it, If you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. So fight because your Savior Jesus is fighting for you. And if you hear his word this evening, I pray you will listen to him, that you will trust him, that you will follow him. 
And I pray that you would ask God to give you someone who you can walk with and encourage you as you share your burdens with them. Now, we are all in this fight by the grace of God. So let's seek the glory of being last, the glory of serving others, the glory of destroying sin. Trust Jesus, who is your living sacrifice. He will do these things in your life. Let's pray. God, as we follow you, you promise that you will not only bless us in the life to come, but you will reveal your glory, your grace, your goodness to us here in this life. So God, as we think about those areas that we don't want to think about, Lord, would you cover them with your grace and your mercy? Would you lead us to repentance and renewed faith? Would you remove the guilt of our sin from our shoulders? And would you lift us up as we humble ourselves before you? We cast our lives upon you. We are in your hands. And so, Lord, we pray that you would hold us up and protect us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Invite you to stand for our final hymn, which is Have Thine Way, Have Thine Own Way, Lord, which is hymn 688. Hymn 688. Go with God's blessing, the grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.